Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. And today we have with us John Taft, the vice chairman of Baird and one of the advisory board members, founding advisory board members of Scholars of Finance with us. Uh, John, it's great to have you today. Great to be here, Ross. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, How are you holding up over there? Are you still in Florida? No, I came back to uh, my home state of Minnesota, and I must say I timed it perfectly because the sun is shining. We're going to have 70 degrees over Easter weekend. Amazing, amazing. Uh, A treat, especially in Minnesota, to have that kind of weather. I'm happy to hear it. Uh, John, I'm so excited to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast today. And I'm sure our audience and our listeners are going to be just thrilled to, to hear from you too directly, just given your career and your background. Um, why don't you just start us off by just sharing with our audience a little bit about your history, your background, and uh, where you're coming from in this conversation? Sure. Well, I think what everybody is interested in is that I am the descendant of William Howard Taft, uh, the 27th president of the United States. Uh, and part of a family legacy that goes back to his father, who is Attorney General of the United States, uh, all the way down until uh, my generation, where my cousin was actually uh, two-term governor of Ohio. So six, seven generations of political and public service to the United States, which has informed my own uh, point of view around what Uh, I should be doing with my life. I started out wanting to be a newspaper reporter, was a comparative literature major at Yale, and uh, had an experience covering the redevelopment of a city in northern uh, northeastern Minnesota, or I'm sorry, northeastern Massachusetts that really changed my view of what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to commit myself to helping make communities more livable, more vital for the people um, who lived there. And so I went back to graduate school and I got into finance uh, and have now uh, spent 40 years in a profession that I never thought uh, I would participate in, in a 10-year chunks, it seems, 10 years in public finance with Piper Jaffray, 10 years in uh, private, uh, privately held asset management business called Voyager Asset Man- Management, 10 years uh, at uh, RBC running their wealth management business, and now as vice chairman at Baird. Thanks, John. Uh, love, always love hearing your story and the path that you've taken. Uh, I think for most people in the, in the financial services industry, uh, the path is quite linear and your journey going into finance, going into public service, you know, exploring a few different venues, both in, you know, in the public sector and in the private sector. And then, of course, to what's been a, a very, very successful career in financial services is, I think, an inspiration to me, definitely as, as a CEO here at Scholars of Finance, and I'm sure to a lot of our listeners. Um, I think back to 
when we Ross, first let met. me interrupt you there. Let me interrupt you there because you're right. I I did interrupt my career in finance to be an aide to the mayor of St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, which was uh, at the time confusing to a lot of the people I was working with. But as I look back on it, one of the most important things I ever did. The second thing is throughout my career in finance, I have been involved in, well, a dozen or more not-for-profit organizations and that, too, has been incredibly important influence on my career and what I care about. So the nonlinearity of one's career can actually be quite important in broadening your interests and uh, and helping you explore and discover what is important to you. I am really grateful that you you built upon that and shared all of your public service. Scholars of Finance is definitely very, very grateful. All of us are very grateful to be one of the recipients of your public service and, and over the last several years. And this actually goes back to what I want to talk about first is when we first met, um, the first time that we connected. I remember it was Andrew Duff, who was then CEO and chairman at Piper Jaffray at the time, said, hey, would love to talk about you know principal leadership and finance when I had sort of pitched this initial thinking of Scholars of Finance. There's another person who you should reach out to who would absolutely love this. His name is John Taft. At that time, you were the CEO of, of course, RBC's uh, Wealth Management Division, an incredibly large firm, of course, with hundreds of billions of dollars of assets, thousands of employees, over 2,000, around 2,000 financial advisors at the time. Um, and I remember reaching out to you feeling a little bit intimidated and got, when you immediately responded and said, I'd love to speak on this topic. I shortly thereafter, of course, ordered your book and I ordered Stewardship. And I remember I was on a flight reading Stewardship out to the East Coast and I, I read it during my whole trip there. I was I was there for some uh, some personal visits and I remember getting back. And when we first met, I had already read the book and I was absolutely floored by the by the this notion of stewardship. And your book, Stewardship, uh, re really has informed the mission of what Scholars of Finance is today. Um, I would just love if you can share a bit about the book and sort of the, the philosophy of stewardship with the audience uh, for us today. Sure. Well, first of all, let me say one of the most gratifying things and surprising things um, in, in my career in finance has been the influence that stewardship has had on scholars of finance, and I hope through scholars of finance on future generations of leaders in our industry. I mean, if the book is really about a couple of things. It's about the importance of core principles uh, on, a, on a personal level, on a um, corporate level, you know, industry sector level, and societal level, the importance of core principles, and my own journey to discover that uh, my core principle, the, the solid ground on which I stand, is the principle of stewardship, which is the notion that uh, we are, uh, our purpose uh, on earth, if you will, is uh, to manage whatever we're doing responsibly for the benefit of others. And um, the, the word stewards were, you know, they're secular, they're secular 
uh, origins for it. Those were the the um, people who would manage the kingdom while the king or queen went off to fight wars or find a spouse or whatever, responsibly managing the kingdom in the absence of the king or queen. And then there's, of course, a religious element to it, which is the notion that you know we are we are all stewards. Uh, of God's planet, we have a responsibility to, to God for um, um, stewarding the planet uh, in, into the future. So there are a couple of sources of that, and and it took me, you know, until into my fifties really before I realized how important that core principle was. The second thing that the book about is the role of finance, and uh, you know the, the hypothesis behind the book and the the argument that it makes is that stewardship is the core principle that should animate and inform the financial services industry when we're doing what society expects us to do so those are the two things i think that that really are embedded in the book that i would hope any reader would take away from it could you have ever imagined that the book would inspire and, and almost result in uh, a, a national organization of of young people all, all trying to become stewards <laughs> to that no. meet or exceed your expectations? Well, far I mean, never dawned on me. You know, I hope the book I hope the book would be helpful in um, in a bunch of different ways, but that was one I never anticipated. And you know, I I hope that that uh, at some point. Stewardship, my book, is superseded by a book that's uh, written by somebody much younger than me that becomes the replacement uh, uh, seminal text for your organization. Maybe. That actually segues into a, a question I was wanting to ask. I remember you and I were, uh, we had just had dinner and you were we were driving you back to your home in, in Minneapolis and we were chatting on the drive. This was a, a couple of winters ago. And you were sharing that you were considering writing Stewardship 2.0 one day. We'd love to hear an update on that and what that might entail and what the thinking might be. Well, the first book, Stewardship, focused on um, the failures that led to the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, which, which I, again, posited were failure, stewardship failures, um, failures of people in the financial services industry to responsibly manage what others, uh, our clients and society, had entrusted to our care, which is really the well-being of the economic system on which everything in our lives depends. Uh, but I said uh, the, the I I I suggested that there were nascent uh, emerging stewardship failures in other areas as well, and um, said that the financial crisis was sort of like a sneak preview uh, or a case study in what happens when you do uh, fail to act responsibly as responsible stewards. And and the areas that I pointed to were climate change, uh, to income inequality, which I didn't talk about uh, in terms of, you know, racial disparities and the racial aspects of income inequality. And then the third was just the public finances of, of well, the United States. And since I wrote the book, the I would I would argue that um, the last 10 years have just been uh, a f further demonstration 
of stewardship failure in those three areas. And unfortunately, I wrote that um, I thought that that might lead to crises that made the financial crisis look like child's play. And so if you think about what could happen with climate change, what could happen with uh, income inequality and the social unrest that it's causing and what could happen with a deteriorating financial condition of the United States of America as we borrow, borrow and borrow, I, I think the book was prescient in that regard. So my book would be Stewardship 2.0, a call to step up and address these and other issues, societal challenges, in ways that would um, demonstrate stewardship responsibility and help avoid crises down the road. Definitely think that now could be the right time. We'll get into it later with, with the Robin Hood and, and GameStop fiasco, the potential legislation stemming from the narratives around it and all, many other recent events. But when you, you talk about this notion of how financial services, how investors uh, can make a positive difference, can address some of these problems, it, it opens up so many questions that I, I want to dig into with you. Recently, I've been thinking a lot about personally what areas of finance, what types of investment vehicles, what types of activity actually create value, uh, long-term value uh, for as many stakeholders as possible versus what activities are, are purely extractive or what activities are just purely exchanging or extracting value and not creating value. And uh, one of our other advisors, J.C. Deswan, um, who I've spoken to recently, he wrote a book, Seeking Virtue in Finance. He actually references you, and we talked about you quite a bit in our conversation. Um, sort of stewardship and, and some of your work really inspired him as well. And he was sort of making this case that venture capital, uh, private equity, and activist investing are sort of three of the vehicles where you can create the most good, right? Through venture capital, you can actually uh, direct the development of industries and allocate capital towards growing a business that makes that makes an impact. In private equity, you can even help grow businesses um, through less of a traditional approach, but you can grow businesses that do good, drive efficiencies, drive growth, uh, make those services more readily available to more people. Uh, and of course, through activist investing, there's an opportunity to really heavily influence the actions of corporate players, um, whether driving them towards ESG criteria, uh, towards more sustainable practices, treating their employees better, uh, making sure that their products are actually serving their customers and not just, again, extracting value or harming them. And I'm curious to hear your take on how we can leverage finance as a force for good. Uh, the, right, the, the title of your other, your, your second book, How Can Finance Be a Force for Good Today, in your opinion? Well, I would say, <laughs> you said you're, you know, so many thoughts and ideas. Let me, let me put a few on the table. But number one, um, any time the financial services industry, financial services firms, markets, tools, products, um, capabilities are helping real people in the real world address real 
problems or achieve real things, then finance has the opportunity to be a force for good. I mean, if you think about it, our core purpose is to um, enable the flow of capital from asset owners, investors of all kinds to productive enterprises of all kinds, manage the risks inherent in doing that, and do it in a way so that the economy grows, uh, society is improved, and everybody's standard of living is increased. And then that's that's what we want from finance. And when you go in, I mean, if you if you look at the history of our industry, there are lots of products. If you want to, if you want to take that for example, or services or capabilities that have the potential to be forces for good <laughs> or forces for destruction. Now, a classic example of that was the uh, innovation. Um, that one of my fellow board members at the Securities Industry and Financial Markets Association was responsible for uh, developing uh, credit default swaps so that um, anyone could uh, hedge the credit risk inherent in exposing themselves to another, another entity. And the whole notion of credit default swaps is is a you know force for good is force for good neutral. It can be used <laughs> for lots of good purposes. What happened was it got quite frankly corrupted, so people started leveraging credit default swaps. They stopped using them as ways to manage their risks in their operating businesses or or whatever in the real world, and they started using it for speculation and therefore turned something that could serve a positive role in society to into something that led to uh, many of the excesses that we had to unwind during and after the financial crisis. So I think it's important for everyone to keep their eye on uh, an innovation, if there is one, or a product and service, and make sure that it is actually serving uh, real people in the real world and uh, uh, helping make the world a better place. If if it's not, then I would scratch my head and say, well, then why are we doing that? Uh, so... You know, we can get, we can possibly get into specific examples, but but will, will you want to talk about GameStop and Robinhood? I mean, Robinhood is an online commission-free trading platform uh, that that has gone to market uh, and and will be going to launching an IPO under the banner of democratizing finance, making uh, equity investment available to people who otherwise couldn't afford to or wouldn't be interested in it. Okay force for good. What we've seen, however, in the not-too-distant past is a way something like that can be perverted, I don't know what the right word, corrupted, 
sounds too intentionally evil, but can be used for other purposes that have nothing to do with democratizing finance, but are about all sorts of other things. So I think there are lots of examples today that you can look to uh, in the marketplace and say, okay, these things are these things are really good. One of them is the evolving. Uh, well, it's more than evolving. It is a it is a tidal wave of interest in socially responsible investing of various kinds. And uh, what's happening is that again, people with capital, investors are increasingly putting their hands in their ears and in the air and saying, "Hey, listen, you know, we for a bunch of reasons, maybe it's a new awareness that we have to address some of these societal issues or we're all going to be in deep trouble." They're putting their hands in the air and they're saying, "We want to invest for purposes uh, other than mere financial return. We want to invest in a way that addresses some of these societal problems we talked about earlier." Now, the financial services industry is coming to the table and saying, okay, we will develop ways for you to do that, and we will put you in touch with the kinds of organizations that are doing the things that you want to support. And so that's where you're seeing this this swell of you know, ESG, impact investing, you know, positive and negative screening techniques, services, uh, products and investment vehicles uh, in the socially responsible investing space. Now, that's all, that's all good. Then little, little um, people are chirping, though, saying, you know, I, I think some of these uh, socially responsible investment vehicles might not be all that socially responsible. They might just be uh, saying that they're socially responsible in a way that misleads investors. And uh, there's enough of that chirping out there right now that the SEC is even investigating what's called greenwashing, which is taking a, you know, a marketing can of green paint and, and painting over whatever, uh, you know, traditional investment vehicle you have and saying this, this is a green investment vehicle. So ESG, though, is something going on that I think is an enormous force for good. And related to that, I know I'm running on here. I just wrote a blog on climate finance. If we want to help the world transition to a carbon-free economy, keep global temperatures below levels that will uh, you know, render the human species extinct, then we are going to need hundreds of trillions of dollars. Biden just put out a request for about $2 trillion in infrastructure spending over 10 years. Well, over the next several decades, we're going to need $150 trillion of capital to decarbonize the world's economy. That will require an entirely new market structure, new uh, types of capital that can are willing to absorb the risk over very long periods of time. I mean, we're talking about decades. So um, the whole notion of climate finance enabling the transformation of our economy is a very exciting area where 
finance has a center seat to saving the planet, literally sitting in the middle of the front row and essential to doing that. So I've rambled on here a little bit, but those are some ways in which I think exciting, positive developments uh, are evolving in the financial services industry. First and foremost, I will say I don't think you're you're rambling in, in, in any way, in any shape or form. I'm personally in rapt attention, and I'm sure those that are listening are are taking notes and, and have a hundred follow-up questions just like I do. And I, I saw your recent article that you just published on climate finance. I uh, appreciate you sharing the slide from BCG uh, explaining the climate finance market structure uh, and what that will look like over the long term. And one thing I, I want to point out is you explaining and, and showing that, this explaining the data and what you're hearing in, in the street, what others are saying that it will take 100 to you know 150 trillion dollars or three to five trillion dollars annually um, over the next several decades to, to try to make this transition um, I think creates the picture and actually captures quite well what we oftentimes talk to our students about uh, and also increasingly the analysts the associates the VPs the managing directors the CFOs and CEOs like yourself for, um, who are getting involved in scholars of finance, which is that finance does have a central seat in this. A lot of the major problems that we're so passionate about these days, uh, many of us are passionate about like climate change, like mental illness, like poverty, like racial injustice and socioeconomic inequality and inequity. Um, these are not problems that you, you know, you start a nonprofit and solve with a few million dollars, or you start a company and solve raising a little bit of VC funding. Some of these problems are, I usually will say billions or even trillions of dollar problems, but uh, the order of magnitude, you know, a hundred, 150 trillion dollars. It's hard to even imagine, I think for, for the individual, for me, even um, what that looks like and clearly represents a transformation of society. And, when you look at where capital resources lie, in the, in the US, a, a statistic that I'll often cite to our students is that in the United States, 80% of capital lies within the private sector. The other 20% is within government or NGOs. So the lion's share of capital is in the private sector uh, and increasingly the private sector is financialized or private and public businesses have you know of course public businesses serve at, you know serve at the behest of their board who are fiduciaries and have responsibility for the shareholders the investors and increasingly through what i would call the democratization of angel investing seed investing crowdfunding even more private businesses now have cap tables right, and have investors who have expectations so i think the role of the finance executive the investor is becoming increasingly important and I appreciate you sharing just how large the problems are, but also the resources needed are and making the, the really, really clear, uh, painting a very clear picture of why finance is the industry, why investors are the people who need to step up to that challenge, of course, alongside the public sector. Um, and I have so many questions about what you just shared. Um, when you think about the, the kind of capital that we need to, to solve some problems, one thing that always interests me is 
how capital flows and through different types of investment vehicles. Like you actually mentioned credit default swaps earlier in your in your comments, saying that they were sort of, you know, force for good neutral, but then they ended up not being corrupted, you know, they, they turned bad. Um, and I actually thought about were you were right used now. were used in a were used inappropriately. Were used inappropriately. Uh, and I actually thought about derivatives, right? Futures, you know, back when mm -hmm. they were initially created so that farmers, right, especially in corn and, and other industries, could hedge pricing risk when they were selling their crops. Um, this helped, as you said, real people in the real world with real opportunities and, and, and improve their quality of life. And now you look at what's happened with derivatives and options, with day trading, creating massive volatility. Uh, just extracting value from the markets, right? Actually having no, the vast majority of derivative and option activity having no material benefit to the world, at least as, as I understand. And I'd be curious to hear sort of your view on what are some of the, you know, the hottest, most popular or most broadly held financial instruments or, or products or vehicles that are that do good that help real people in the real world with real opportunities and then what are some of those that don't that are purely extracting value if you could maybe share a list of both and the reason i ask the question is so that our listeners our audience especially what our students as they're thinking through their own investing personally their own future financial activity their own careers they can have a sense of which way which way to arc their career so they can do the most good yeah. Okay. Well, before I do that, I will do that. Uh, I, I want to make build on something you said, which is it is true that uh, if you're trying to deploy capital to solve problems or to accomplish societally important goals, um, most of that capital has to come from private sources. And again, climate finance is a classic, is a perfect example. The amount of money it will take to solve our climate problem um, is many times larger than the amount of money government it has available to throw at the problem. And we, we see that right now. I mean, $1.9 or $2 billion, trillion is a lot of money uh, in um, Biden's uh, most recent infrastructure proposal, but it's a drop in the bucket versus what's needed to effectuate climate change. So I, wa I wanted to emphasize that. Secondly, um, what products are good? What are extracting value? Well, I, I give you a couple of examples. Um, and I uh, am a fan of uh, tradition, a, a lot of traditional uh, investing vehicles. I mean, I think that the, the financial system has done a pretty good job of supporting um, our economies over over decades, over the last you know hundred years. Yes, with some significant bumps and valleys along the way, but done a pretty good job. I started my career in the municipal bond business, and these are, of course, bonds uh, that have a, a uh, maturity and they have a usually have a fixed rate of interest that they pay, and the rate of interest is free from tax. Why? Because the bonds, by definition, 
have to be the proceeds have to be used for some uh, public purpose as defined in whatever law or uh, portion of the tax code is applicable. So the original green bonds, the original social bonds, the, you know, the original socially responsible way to invest was to buy a bond, the proceeds of which were going to be used in your local community to improve what quality of the schools, to rebuild a bridge, to separate the sewer system so wasn't dumping sewage and raw sewage into the the river that ran through the community. I mean, these are all all things that that, that you know to to build a new hospital. To um, uh, these are all things that that I helped. Um, finance when I was uh, when I was um, in the industry and uh, those are still available today and will be even more important going forward because a tremendous amount of the of the infrastructure uh, that needs to be repaired is going to be financed with with uh, municipal bonds both tax exempt and taxable um, so that's that's one example of something that's adding value. Another old school um, in, uh, investment vehicle that nobody thinks about, but provides a very interesting counterpoint to Robinhood and the GameStop short squeeze uh, debacle we just went through. Our employee stock purchase plans. These are plans. They were actually introduced in the 1960s as part of President Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty. They permit, if if you work for a publicly traded company, it permits you to buy the stock of the publicly traded company at a 15% discount up to a limit. happens to be 25,000. It was in the 60s. It is today. Uh, With no um, uh, taxation on that discount uh, uh, currently, so it's it's a way to build value and uh, manage risk. Actually, actually reduce risk if you're buying something at a 15% discount. Um, so, properly executed employee stock purchase plans could be a tremendous way for ordinary people, you know, workers in publicly held companies, to build value. Well, to me, that's democratizing finance right there. And of course, you know, the fabulous thing about the financial services industry and amount of innovation being used, there is a company backed by private equity firms that's come in and said, how can we help people use these plans more efficiently than they have in the past? Because participation in them is very low. People don't have enough money to fully utilize them. So this firm comes in and offers employees who elect for this short-term loans, so that they can buy with you know if they if all they can afford through payroll deductions is a thousand dollars worth of their company stock, they can they can sign up with this uh, company and the company will lend them interest-free short-term through the purchase period of the company stock the maximum amount they can buy under the plan, let's say $25,000. So they end up buying $25,000 worth of stock 
at a discount mm-hmm. instead of, and then the loan is repaid um, when uh, when when the uh, offering period is over. But they're able to increase their economic participation in the employee stock purchase plan. Well, that's democratizing finance, old school. So I love my personal uh, favorite uh, innovations out there are things that look to existing uh, vehicles and adapt them for current needs and purposes. And in case of uh, the employee stock purchase plan, what is the need? The need is to try to fill the wealth gap. The people who don't have a lot of resources have not been able to participate in the in the increased value of financial assets. Well, this would be a way sort of leveraging their employee stock purchase plan participation would be a way to help fill that gap. So our industry is is filled with things like that, that I that's one thing I love about it. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. And if you had to give our listeners one or two products that you think are purely well, extractive, my, what, would, what might you well, say? Well, my okay. So I'm going to get in trouble for this, but but um, I don't want to put you in a rough frequ- spot here. No, <laughs> well, no, no. I'm just going to say I I don't understand. So I'll, I'll put the problem back on me. I don't understand what social purpose, high frequency trading, for one's own account serves. You know, we're talking about, you know, getting in front of other trades, you know, trying to exploit tiny, tiny inefficiencies in nanoseconds. Also, you earn a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a penny on a trade. Um, I suppose, you know, you're, quote unquote, improving market efficiency, but boy, to me, that falls in the category of somebody, something that nobody would miss if it didn't exist. And in fact, we actually have some firms, um, some former colleagues of mine, set up uh, um, a, uh, a firm that actually slowed trades down, it was an exchange that, that slowed trades down coming in so that high-frequency traders couldn't take advantage of price discrepancies on their exchange. I thought, I thought that that was a good sort of counter innovation. Um, so that would be an example for some for something that I of something that I just think is extractive and is not is not is not helping anybody in the real world do anything the financial services system was supposed to do. Yeah, I oftentimes wonder as well <laughs> what uh, high frequency trading is doing materially. Uh, beyond the the sort of age-old argument that it increases market efficiency, there's of course some benefit to that. But it it when you think about the sort of impact that any kind of instrument could have in in terms of its good, it definitely seems to me to be on the lower end. And I'm of course still learning more as well. One comment that you made that I want to follow up on. But before you go um, on, before you go on, I'm sorry. I want I want I do want to I do want to give voice though, and there's some very smart people out there uh, like uh, who have written about, you know, the, the big question, which is if, you know, to what extent is and to what extent is the financial services industry extractive? You know, does it to what extent is it adding value and to what extent is it um, uh, extracting value that could be 
directed elsewhere. And um, that gets to the whole question of what is the optimal size of the financial services industry relative to overall global economy. And uh, one of the things that is true is that the financial services industry as a percentage of GDP is much larger today than it was, you know, decades ago. It's not as large a percentage of the economy as it was going into the financial crisis. That really is when it top ticked. And uh, but is it is it if we if we reduced financial the financial services sector as a percentage of GDP, would we be better off or worse off? And there's some good arguments to make that we wouldn't be any worse off, which would argue that maybe we've gotten larger than we need to be to accomplish. What we sh- what society wants us to accomplish, and I think there is some. Um, I'm not smart enough uh, or well schooled enough to know whether that's true, but I think it's an interesting area for exploration going forward, because an oversized financial services industry isn't ultimately in the uh, best interests of of society. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think the sort of spectrum that I oftentimes find myself pondering um, rather than sort of size and proportion of GDP, which I, I have looked at, and you can definitely see those trends where it's, it's increased dramatically since, especially since the, the 1960s, 1970s, um, but is the spectrum between yeah value adding and value extracting. Um, a large financial services industry, if 80% of activity is just trading and, and extraction, um, does that do, but 20%, you know, is, is additive. Is that, is that better than a much smaller, you know, something, a financial services industry, a quarter the size where 100% of activity is actually value adding, is creating yeah. value, is well, growing GDP, like that, you said before. That is a point that's been made. Mm. One question I wanted to ask um, earlier was, you mentioned you you sort of touched on wealth inequality, the wealth gap, uh, and there's some even recent data um, that, that that talks about this and digs into it. I saw a Forbes article actually last year titled "Most Americans Don't Have a Real Stake in the Stock Market," a very fitting title. And the author goes on to say that only 55% of Americans own stocks, according to an April 2020 poll by Gallup. And when you look at um, the latest government data available from the Federal Reserve from 2016, only 14% of American families are directly invested in individual stocks, but over over 50% actually have some investment, usually through the form of for retirement accounts, right? Um, yep. There was, an N- there was an NYU professor, Edward Wolf, who tracks wealth in America, uh, and that even though half of all households own shares, um, the richest 10% of households in the U.S. controlled 84% of the total value of stocks well, in 2016. Yeah. Um, yep. So I'm curious, you know, of course, inequality and equity, it's been at the forefront of people's minds, rightfully so. I want to hear your take on to what degree you think the financial system can address inequality and inequity in society and how people in finance can lead the charge or at least do their part. 
Um, well, I, I, the good news is I think there's a growing acknowledgement <clears throat> that there is a wealth gap, and there's a fair amount of energy around trying to address it. I mean, this that, that employ the example I gave of employee stock purchase plans and trying to increase participation in those uh, is would be one example. And and the innovation somebody came up with, which is tr- to help uh, investors leverage whatever they can spend. Uh, or workers to participate in their buying their company stock. That that's a good example. During the um, uh, 2020 presidential campaign, uh, Mayor Bloomberg, uh, while he was still a candidate for president, actually uh, put forth a proposal without any specifics, but it intrigued me for using the postal service to deliver more basic financial services. You saw recently that Walmart hired one of the top uh, executives in uh, Goldman Sachs's push to launch Marcus, a um, sort of a mass affluent uh, lending and wealth management capability right. that they've developed, hired them to do the same at Walmart. Uh, and I think, I think that uh, Providing basic financial services to people who haven't had or haven't uh, uh, taken advantage of um, financial asset ownership, I, I think I think there's a lot of energy behind that. Now, none none of these innovations do any good without a corresponding commitment to financial literacy. I mean, I, I don't know what the, the numbers would say, but the, the financial literacy of the American, the, the, the potential pool of investors in America is woefully uh, inadequate. People simply don't understand financial markets uh, and they don't, therefore, know what they can be doing to increase their chances of accumulating wealth over the course of their lifetime. They don't understand how markets behave. Um, so you see all, all you constantly see all this suboptimal behavior on the part of small investors buying high, selling low, trying to time the market, going from stocks to bonds at exactly the wrong time, uh, you know, all this activity that just further uh, puts them into the hole uh, that they're trying to climb out of. So I think financial literacy is something the industry needs to to work on more. And as, as you know, Ross, you know, the proceeds of my second book went 100% to a couple of financial literacy issues, uh, uh, organizations, organizations um, focused on improving financial literacy. Um, And there are lots of uh, organizations out there. I think they deserve more support from our industry. I think our industry can invest more in helping people understand uh, financial markets because it's sort of it's sort of intimidating if you if you're not involved. Um, The other the other challenge, though, in the whole inequality uh, arena, and I've, I've written about this, is the, the uh, difficulty small businesses, particularly small businesses owned by 
minority uh, entrepreneurs, and particularly small businesses owned by minority entrepreneurs in disadvantaged communities, the difficulty they have getting access to capital. <clears throat> and uh, one of the, in fact, we're having a uh, Minnesota uh, sponsors every year a, a uh, CFA Society event uh, in April, we're in April now, The uh, uh, for um, uh, uh, Putting Investors First uh, is the name of the initiative. At any rate, we're going to be highlighting or I'm going to be interviewing the founder of one of the longest standing and most effective community development finance uh, organizations in the country, uh, the Community Reinvestment Fund, USA, based in, in Minneapolis. And that's all they do. They're one of about a thousand CDFIs in the country. There is a division of the Treasury Department that supports them nominally. But what they do is they provide capital to small businesses, minority-owned businesses, small minority-owned businesses in disadvantaged communities. And um, the founder of that, a longtime CEO, a guy named Frank Altman, has lots of good ideas about what uh, can be done to improve the flow of capital through organizations like that to exactly the kind of people and businesses we want to support. And uh, hopeful that the Biden administration is going to be a whole lot more supportive of the CDFI community in the country, which is still just a drop in the bucket relative to what's needed. But um, one one out of the blue, uh, Mackenzie Scott, so Jeff Bezos's ex-wife, came by and made a $15 million contribution to the CRF USA CDFI in Minnesota, which will take their their capital from $35 million to $50 million, and uh, is going to make a huge difference in the communities uh, that they help because they can leverage that many times over. Uh, so that's another area where finance could do more is doing something. The alternative uh, uh, capital uh, market uh, to get capital to small businesses uh, in um, disadvantaged communities. I've got to say it's incredibly encouraging to hear what you, what you're seeing and even some of the the opportunities that you're engaging in. Um, CDFIs, like you mentioned, financial literacy, as you mentioned, being something that you've invested really heavily in. I've, as we've begun growing scholars of finance, I've been finding out that financial literacy is a, a much larger problem than I had been aware of. Um, after doing some research, some of the students at, at chapters that we're now launching, uh, especially some of our first-gen low-income students, um, have learned very little. They don't they don't know a lot about what finance is, um, what it entails how to manage your own personal finances. And so I think that the education is of those who don't have, you know, generations of, of people who have had financial advisors, who have inherited wealth, et cetera, is gonna be so crucial and so important. Um, there's a couple other things that I, I've been seeing recently too that I've been excited about. Um, I'll, I'll mention, I think a couple at Andreessen Horowitz, uh, one of the VC firms local to me out here in Silicon Valley, um, there's the they have the cultural leadership fund right, where they're essentially partnering with cultural leaders to advance more African Americans into technology. 
which I've just thought was incredible. And they even just launched a new fund called the Talent, the Talent X Opportunity Fund, right? Where they are actually trying to bring capital to uh, entrepreneurs, uh, to young business owners who historically have not had opportunity, right? Who haven't been able to get access to the the type of ecosystem and resources that so many others have um, and actually building what is more or less a foundation that will build and grow upon itself to, uh, it's a donor advisory fund uh, managed by Tides and it will grow upon itself, continuing to bring capital to entrepreneurs uh, who, who otherwise wouldn't have any opportunity. And it's, it's exciting to see some of that, like you mentioned in the entrepreneurial space um, with just a few minutes left, I, I know we're we're coming up on time. Just maybe a last quick question for you. I wanted to ask you, John, you know, with your decades of experience now in in Wall Street and in finance, having worked your way up from analyst to you know CEO of multi you know multi thousand person firm with hundreds of billions of dollars of assets under management, to now of course serving as vice chair of Baird. Um, what sort of key advice? that you think is timely and relevant to anyone who might be listening, who's whether a student interested in entering finance or a current finance professional or investor might you offer, what can we do, you know, as scholars of finance, if you will, um, to maximize our personal impact in today's current environment, what would you ask us to do or encourage us to do? You know, um, <laughs> as you know, I, uh, support scholars of finance because I think you're, incredibly uh, impactful in helping to launch future leaders uh, of our industry. And I think you're doing many of the things that um, uh, need to be done to ensure that we have a new generation of ethical uh, leaders of finance who are focused on uh, the, the, the proper purpose of uh, our industry, which is helping real people in the real world accomplish uh, real things. I, I, a couple, a couple of things I would say. One is um, exposing uh, people who want to get into the industry, uh, both uh, well over, over the early years, uh, whether whether still in school and in early years of their career, to people like me, people who've been around. Uh, I think can be enormously helpful. I I know that that when I was a, n- a new entrant into the industry, and my dad was a nuclear physicist. I as I said, I was a literature major and a newspaper reporter. I didn't know a bond from a banana uh, until I went to graduate school, and then then I just learned what I learned in books. So when I came into the industry, looking around and saying, "Is this going to be for me?" I would spot and focus on people who look to me uh, to be the kind of person I wanted to be down the road in the industry, and I would I would just watch them. Watch how they dress, watch how they comported themselves, watch what they did, and engage them in conversations. And really, Scholars of Finance does that for your membership. So that's number one. Um, I also think that that uh, networking with their peers can be in- incredibly helpful. But fundamentally, okay, the the the. In this industry, there is so much stress, there is so much noise, there is so much volatility. There are days when you think you hung the moon and and days when you really wonder whether 
you should go into the office <laughs> or just or just you know start another career uh the the most important thing that sustains you over the course of a long career in finance i believe is is having a series of maybe one <laughs> core principles that you can anchor yourself with and stand on in good times and bad. And my personal one is the core principle of stewardship, the notion that I was put on the earth to help others, that it's not about me, it's about adding value and making the world a better place for other people. And I'm going to do that in my personal life, and I'm going to do that in my not-for-profit activities, and I'm going to do that in my community involvement, and I'm going to do that through my career in finance. So having a well-defined, internalized set of principles that you believe in no matter what. You may not have those today. You may, it may take some extreme experiences to teach you what those are, but develop them, internalize them, and they will sustain you throughout what hopefully will be uh, exciting, rewarding, and uh, socially valuable careers in finance. Amazing. Uh, thanks, John. I'm inspired even hearing your, your closing remarks. And to all of our listeners, I, I hope that you are as well. Um, John, I know we've come up to time. So just want to thank you so much for our conversation today. I've learned a lot. Um, I'm sure everyone else has. And we can't ha wait to have you back on and um, see a lot more of you in Scholars of Finance here in the, in the years ahead. And just want to thank you for, for sharing your insights, everything you've taught us, um, helping us see how we can invest with integrity, invest in integrity, how, how we can lead with character um, and, and make a difference. Like you said, help real people in the real world with uh, real opportunities. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.